Oh, what a blessing already to have been just with you and with our God and his special presence in his temple, as it were, this morning. Uh, having, having finished the Gospel of John last week, I believe, I won't commit until I actually do it, but I believe we're going to move on next to the book of Acts. But before we do that, uh, we're going to take a couple of weeks to look at a couple of psalms. We started this series years ago, and uh, every once in a while we pick it up again. We're going to look at Psalm chapter 13 this morning, and so I won't have you stand at this time, but I just invite you to, again, listen to the reading of God's word, our, our text for this morning. The psalmist, King David, prays, How long, O Yahweh? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Look and answer me, O Yahweh my God. Give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says, I have overcome him, and my adversaries rejoice that I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh, because he has dealt bountifully with me. I want to start off just by suggesting that the Psalms are really actually often misunderstood, and I would suggest misapplied by Christians today. And I think part of the reason that we have difficulty approaching the Psalms rightly is because we have a self a self-focused and individualistic approach to the Psalms. It's the nature of the beast. We live in America, in the West, in the 21st century. Okay, we have to just deal with the reality that, that we are by nature uh, swimming in a world of individualism. And that's, that's infected us. And so we bring that really to our reading of the scriptures, but specifically to the reading of the Psalms. So on the one hand, the Psalms are beloved by Christians. Like every Christian loves the Psalms, right? We just love the Psalms. And why do we love the Psalms? Because they give expression to our deepest feelings and our deepest emotions, and we can identify, and and that's true. And yet, on the other hand, Christians often find it uncomfortable, and in many cases, repulsive, to sing the Psalms in worship. How does that go together? The Psalms are what I love, and yet I, I can't bear to sing them in worship, right? Kind of, kind of that, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit, but... And I wonder if that's a sign that sometimes we love the Psalms for the wrong reasons. So, to help us maybe approach Psalm 13 rightly, we're going to look at, first of all, the king. And those of you who have been here for a while, this will be somewhat of a review, but hopefully a refreshing one. It's important to remember that this psalm, Psalm 13, is first and foremost a psalm in your handout of the king. I cannot emphasize that enough. It's first and foremost, before it's your prayer, okay? because we approach it like, my prayer, I get to pray this, and then I don't know if I like that part. I like that part, though. Um, so we have to remember, before it's your prayer, it's the prayer of the king. It's first and foremost the prayer specifically of Yahweh's anointed 
whom he has installed upon Zion, his holy mountain. I just love saying that. I hope you love hearing that. And to whom he said, Yahweh said to his son, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then three wonderful words in English. Ask of me. Ask of me. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So ask of me, says God to his royal son. In other words, he's saying, pray to me. Pray to me with these words that I'm going to, these words here. And so Psalm 13 is the king's response to Yahweh's invitation. It's kind of like the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, pray in this way. We can pray with exactly those words, but it's also a model. So in Psalm 2, when Yahweh says to his royal son that he's installed on Zion, pray to me, ask of me with these words, right, and I'll give you this, that's the model for the king. And so the king prays this prayer because it's God's will that he pray this prayer. Far from this then making the psalm's prayers we can't pray, because then we're like, okay, now I have another problem. If this is the prayer of the king, I'm not a king. How are, these, how are these prayers mine? Well, in fact, that only establishes how they're yours. And, and really, the reality that they do belong to us. This is a wonderful, wonderful thing. The king represents and stands for the people. So, in the sufferings and the sorrows of the king... You have inescapably the sufferings and the sorrows of his people. In the sufferings, in the triumphs and the joys of the king, you have the triumphs and the joys of his people. They they go together. And so it is Yahweh's invitation to his royal son that actually emboldens me to say, oh, I will pray that with my king. I will pray that with him. This is the one who we, by grace, have owned as our king through faith. So we know, okay, that, that all the kings of the old covenant, of old covenant Israel, particularly David, but all of his descendants, insofar as they're his descendants and hold the office, were types of the true messianic king, Jesus Christ. In the same way that that earthly Zion over there in, in Israel, right, upon which God installed his royal son, is a type of a heavenly Mount Zion, upon which God has installed Jesus Christ today. When we understand that, then, we see that these psalms are all in in different ways, including even the psalms of confession, in different ways. They are the prayers, the laments, They are the praises of our King Jesus Christ with whom we have all been united by faith. Okay, So now we're beginning to see how these prayers are ours and the sins in which we pray them. These are prayers that we know Jesus prayed in the days of his flesh. And we saw that when we went through Matthew, when we went through John, um, when we went through this introduction to the Psalms and how to sing the Psalms. These are the prayers Jesus prayed and that in your handout, he now leads us in praying. Because we, 
still live in the flesh. Not in the sinful flesh, but in the, in the flesh that's subject to sin. I, we do live in the sinful flesh too, but that's not what I'm talking about. And in the flesh subject to sin, we live in this still fallen world. And so these prayers are still ours to pray. We could say that Jesus prays these prayers for us on our behalf. I mean, Jesus is sitting in glory, right, at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't need to be praying these prayers, so many of them, at the same, in the same sense as he did, any longer. But he's still our king, and all of his people are still here living in the flesh, in this fallen world. And so as the one who intercedes for us, he leads us in praying these prayers, the king's prayers. So we come now then to this specific prayer that our king prays, on our behalf, and that he leads us in praying with him. Now, did you get that? Okay, let me say it again, because that's, now that sets up these next four words here again. We come to the prayer our king prays on our behalf, and that he leads us in praying with him. In that light, then, listen to the opening words of this prayer. How long, O Yahweh? That just blows my mind. The Psalms, the Psalms are indeed full of the real emotions, of the real feelings, the real deal. You know, sometimes when we haven't felt what someone else is feeling, those feelings just seem fake. Like, how can it be? But then when you feel that way, you realize that's real. Oh, that's real. That's what the Psalms are full of, is these real emotions and feelings that are common to the human condition. But here's the thing. Not, not specifically to the human condition, but specifically to the experience of every true believer. Because the world doesn't have feelings like we're about to see here. These are the emotions and feelings of the true believer. The Psalm begins with a groan that's cut off mid-breath. By the, how, how, by the extremity of its own feeling. So in just a moment, David is going to ask in a complete sentence, how long will you hide your face from me? Then he'll ask again, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? Another complete thought. Then again, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? But he begins with a thought cut short. How long? And it has a little ring to us these days. It's kind of like, oh, I like, you know, I like the sound of it just being that. But at the end of the day, it's a sentence chopped in the middle. How long? Oh, Yahweh. It's real human emotion, okay? It's, it's the kind of distress for which there's no easy fix. And in fact, here in this context, we may not like to admit it, but there really is no fix at all. Unless God chooses to do something. Now, does it sound like I'm blaming God? Well, except for the bad connotation of blame, yes. If this distress was originally caused by sin, then we know the psalmist has already confessed the sin because he's not talking about sin or guilt in this chapter anywhere. He's already come to God repeatedly, asking for his intervention. And so the psalmist doesn't have anything left to do. 
That's why he asks, how long? A literal, more literal translation would be, until when? Until when? In, in just those two words, as I reflected on this, the psalmist is really kind of encapsulating what's at the heart of so many of our trials and of our griefs and of our sufferings as God's children. Because isn't it, it's not just the griefs and the sufferings. We can, at some level, we can bear griefs and sufferings if we see the end of them. That's not primarily the problem. It's not what really tests our faith. It's the feeling that they're never going to go away. And that therefore God himself is distant and far off. Not caring or paying attention. And so we pray with our king. And in some mysterious and wonderful sense, watch this, this is amazing. We pray with our king at Yahweh's own invitation. This is what we pray at Yahweh's invitation. How long, O Yahweh? It's what he invites us to pray. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David knows that God is still aware of him. Obviously, he's not, he doesn't think God has had a cognitive lapse of memory. But that's actually what makes things all the more painful. Because he knows he is aware of him of all his griefs and sufferings, and still does nothing. There seems to be no end in sight. And so for all practical purposes, it seems like God has forgotten him. But we need to take it a step further, actually, and realize that it's not just how it seems or how it feels. There is a sense in which God really actually has hidden his face from David for no fault of David. We say, God doesn't do that. Now, if, if God's hiding his face from David, David must mean to get something right on his end. But, but no, that's not the reality here. Okay, let's just explore this just for a second. We know, okay, but by faith, that God's face is always shining upon us. In other words, it's looking upon us favorably and with blessing in Christ. Because of Christ, especially... But even in the Old Testament, uh, in, the, in the typical way, God's, God's face was, is always shining upon his, his children. It never ceases to shine upon them. But there's a sense in which the face of God shining upon us is also a picture of his gracious, favorable answers to all our prayers. So when I'm praying a righteous prayer, and that prayer has not been answered, and it's not answered, and it's not answered, and it's not answered. And you could say, well, he's, well, his answer is no. Well, no, it's, it's not answered. Okay. It's a righteous prayer. Then what is God doing? He's hiding his face from us. And again, let me clarify. Why does God hide his face from us? Because in the mystery of his secret will, which is inaccessible to us, That is the way his face is still shining upon us in Christ. Why does God hide his face from you? 
It is always and only because in the mystery of his secret will, that is the way his face is shining on you in Christ, who works all things together for our good. Okay, but, and that's something I would tell you, and you should tell me if I'm struggling someday. But then at the end of the day, don't turn that into the trite answer that it is not by neglecting this reality. As wonderful and as comforting as that is, it does not take away in your handout the distress of still being compelled to ask, even if it is at God's own invitation, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long until when shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? What a, what a, what a, I mean, can, can you guys, can we feel bad? For this, sorrow in your heart all the day? We said a moment ago that there's no fix available to David. On the one hand, there's no sin for him to confess. On the other hand, now we see there's no wise or responsible course of action that he hasn't already tried or that he's, or that he's not attempting to work out. Because, right? you know, we're not, we can't just sit back and say, you know, God will do everything. God uses means. He's commanded us to do things. So David has tried everything. He's still trying to think of what to try. And so far, God has granted him no success. God has granted him no success. And the result is sorrow in his heart all the day. And it's, it strikes me again, especially sometimes, you know, I, I mean, well, any one of us, if we're dealing with, if we're trying to help a children or a friend or people in the flock or brothers or sisters, we really do like fixes. And sometimes there are fixes. Oftentimes there are. Not in, the, not in the trite way. But sometimes there really is no fix that can take away the cry of how long. Or the sorrow in our hearts. Sometimes there's no fix because it's God himself who chooses in the mystery of his will to hide his face. Three times David asked, how long? Now he asks for the fourth and final time. How long? Until when will my enemy be exalted over me? So far we feel like we've been able to identify, I think, I I would assume, with the feelings of the psalmist. But now we get to this part. And we see that all these feelings of the psalmist are rooted in this very concrete uh, reality of his enemy being exalted over him. And in verse 4, boasting he's overcome him and rejoicing that he is shaken. The psalms are full of enemies. They're just full of enemies. Adversaries. And that tends to make us modern Western Christians very uncomfortable. What do we do with this? First of all, are we really supposed to have enemies? Aren't we people who shouldn't have enemies? And second of all, even if we do have enemies, shouldn't we love them? And why are we praying like this? At this point, I think it's tempting for us to spiritualize the enemies so that we think of things like the world and the flesh and the devil, not people. And in a sense, there's a truth to that, but here's the problem. How is the world manifested? Well, 
concretely in hostile men and women. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. There's our king speaking. What about the flesh? The flesh is a problem because the flesh is within. The flesh is me. It's within. It's my problem. But in the Psalms, there is the flesh. And the flesh is not the enemy in the Psalms. The enemy is external to us. The enemy is out there. And the Psalms always carefully distinguish what is out there from the sin that is within. So we can't take the route of the enemy is the flesh or, or sin or temptations to sin. Finally, what about the devil? Well, the devil tempts to sin, but also he manifests concretely his hatred for you and for me and for God's people by inspiring opposition. Peter says that in 1 Peter 5. So when Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that doesn't mean we don't have enemies out there that are flesh and blood. He's saying that behind all of our real flesh and blood enemies are spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's the more ultimate reality. I I cannot see any way to spiritualize the enemy in the Psalms. How then... Do we pray these psalms with all their talk of enemies? How then do we sing them in church on Sunday? Pray them today. Well, the key is this. Remember that they are, first of all, the prayers that God invited his royal son, the king, to pray. In order to understand who the enemy is, We must always have in our mind Psalm chapter 2, which 1 and 2 are fundamental. They are truly the introduction to the whole Psalter. And so Psalm 2 begins with these words. Why do the nations rage? And by the way, brothers and sisters, just let's say, you know, we're living in a day when Christians are getting increasingly anxious as we see what's going on in the world, right? We see the enemy a little more clearly these days. And, and how are Christians responding? Sometimes we respond with biting sarcasm. Sometimes, sometimes with kind of almost a visceral kind of an attack on our own part. Sometimes we just cower and go into a corner. And I would suggest to you that learning the Psalms helps us to know how to deal in a holy way with what we're seeing in our culture around us. So keep that in mind as we explore this. Because in many ways, as Christians, we don't know what to do with what's happening. We haven't learned. So, why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. You you can't... You cannot read the word enemy or adversary anywhere in the Psalms without keeping that phrase in mind against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The enemy in the Psalms, who, who is it? It's who is he? It's first of all, the enemy of Yahweh's anointed, which means the enemy is always actively in your handout plotting, scheming, rebellion against Yahweh himself. 
take a minute to let that reality sink in, right? That's what's going on. And it has been going on since the beginning. Then we need to remember the end of Psalm 2. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh. Here's an invitation. Uh, more than an invitation, a command as well. With fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, the king, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So who's the enemy of Yahweh's anointed? He's the one who stubbornly refuses to take refuge in him. So this is not about one man's personal vendetta. This is the king God installed on Zion. And what is he concerned for? What is the passion of the king's heart? It is for God's sovereign rule and for the peace of all God's covenant people. That should be the case for any good king. So in Psalm 3, the king, David, prays for his own salvation. And then he catches us all off guard when after all the me's and my's, he he talks about your people. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God. And we as individualistic people, we think the king is just, we think this, whoever this guy is that's praying this prayer, he's just thinking of me. That's false. That's not true. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. You can see how individualism has infected us. So it's difficult for us to see the me's and the my's in the context of the king who represents the people who rules for Yahweh. In Psalm 51, David, the king, confesses his own sin. He seeks forgiveness. He concludes then with a prayer for all God's people. Watch it again. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And we can certainly pray this individually. But David... David is praying this in a broader sense. Create in me a clean heart, individually and broader, right? Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, by your favor. And then he says, do good to Zion, as though God forgiving him has something to do with the good of Zion, right? God creating in him a clean heart has something to do with building the walls of Jerusalem, The king is the one who rules for God over God's people. Therefore, the enemy of the king is not just his own personal enemy against whom he has a personal vendetta. He's the enemy of all of us. He's the proclaimed enemy of God. So we see then how essential it is that when we pray the Psalms, we pray them always in and with our king. And always in the light of my place in this community of God's covenant people. That's not, though, how we tend to read and pray the Psalms. As I've pointed out a couple of times, we, we generally read them in a very highly individualized, self-focused manner, which I would suggest to you is why, in your handout, we're so uncomfortable singing psalms about God shattering the teeth of the wicked and effacing the memory of our enemies. 
But the apostles in Acts, they knew how to sing these psalms without any personal vendetta, without any spiteful or hateful heart. They knew how to do it. And so after being briefly jailed, they were jailed, then they were ordered not to speak in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus. The apostles went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Master, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said in Psalm chapter 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That's where the, the quotation stops for us, at least. But they didn't quote that out of context. They loved the part about, God sh- about the king shattering his enemies. Right? They loved that part, too. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. It's the enemy. The enemy is there. And they're threatening the gospel and, and God's people. And grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. How can the apostles pray with such confidence in the face of threats and persecution? It's because, because they know God will answer the prayer. He has invited their king to pray. Ask of me. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. Part of that is through the preaching of the gospel. But part of that is also through this means. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. Brothers and sisters, we're not on the losing side. So let's come back then to David's fourth how long. How long? Until when will my enemy be exalted over me? In the West today, and I say in the West, because it's, it's not, this, is, this is not the world over. We, we see the enemy meditating rebellion against Yahweh and against his anointed. Certainly in the promotion of wokeness. And I kind of get tired of woke, the word. But, but man, cert, certainly what all that means and stands for, that is there. It's a reality. So that is how the enemy is meditating rebellion. We see it in the promotion of all the critical race theory, but, and we see it in its attack, in its all-out frontal assault on the image of God. That is, the enemy is assaulting the image of God who created man, male and female. And eventually that will come around, certainly, to us as Christians in more direct ways. What about, though, in other nations where communist, authoritarian governments for how many centuries and right, how many years, have been meditating rebellion by persecuting and oppressing God's people? Are we too individualistic? Can we not groan? Can we not cry out with them? How long? Oh, Yahweh? Or do we have to live there to pray these prayers? 
Can we not pray in and with our king? It's like that makes all things possible. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? We must learn to pray these words. We know, though, that today there is no longer any any enemy that's exalted over Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. And why is that? Because Jesus has been installed not on any earthly Mount Zion. He's He's been installed on an unassailable, unreachable, untouchable, heavenly Mount Zion. Seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That means that when we pray the Psalms, we pray them in a way that the Old Testament saints never could. We pray now in light of the fulfillment already of Psalm 2. That's that's a game changer. But there's still a not yet. And we know all about that, right? It still remains for all rule and authority and power to be abolished. They're still running around like they don't know they've been defeated. Right? That's what's happening. We do not yet see all things subjected to him and how we long for that day when we see it. And even at times we see the evidences and signs of it here. Right? The final triumph, there are foretastes of it at times at various places throughout history. Therefore Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so we still groan, as, as Ed read this morning, what a perfect passage in so many ways. We still groan. We, we haven't learned groaning. But we ought to. Waiting for the redemption of our body and even of the whole creation. The Spirit still helps us in our weakness, right? Interceding for us with what? groanings too deep for words the enemy does still exalt himself over god's covenant people he can't exalt himself over christ himself but he does over us here still living here and so it is our king jesus himself who is who is still our sympathetic high priest who now leads us in praying how long will my enemy be exalted over me we pray this prayer only, only. This is not just some privilege we have. It is responsibility. Only, always, in and with our king. I ask you, when we understand that, how can we have any hesitation in praying and singing these words together and with God's church all throughout the world? When we understand that, how can we sing these words with anything less? When we understand, when we get that, how can we sing these words with anything less than a pure and God-honoring heart? We long, we long to see our enemies crushed and destroyed. We do. Insofar as they are the declared enemies of our king, Therefore, insofar as they're the enemies of all our brothers and sisters throughout all time and throughout all the world, and therefore, insofar as they are the enemies of our most holy joy and gladness. We cry out to God for the destruction of our enemies. 
insofar as they're also enemies of the gospel. But insofar as my enemy is personally antagonistic to me, I am called to love him, forgive him, and pray for him. Some people think David didn't get that part. Well, David did get that part. We see that when Shimei went along cursing David. And David said, let him curse. God has told him. That was a personal thing. Shimei and David, David is kicked out of his city. Looks like Absalom might be king, right? So David knows that Shimei is not ultimately my enemy here, right? And if he is, to the extent he is my my enemy, I am not called to mete out the vengeance of the king now. We think of that same thing with David and Nabal. When he was on his personal vendetta to wipe Nabal off the face of the earth and his family. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? What is the phrase with the Lord? One day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. We remember that, but that doesn't remove in itself the distress of the present circumstances. And so Yahweh himself invites us to cry out together in and with our king, how long, O Yahweh? Rather than being an expression of doubt, what is that? That's the cry of faith. How long is a lament? We could call it a complaint. But not a bad complaint. It's a good complaint. It's the cry of faith. So it's the question God's saints have been asking in every generation. We're not new to this. We're not new to the game here. This has been going on for a very long time. Saints of God asking, contained within lament, is petition. So we read in verses 3 to 4. Look and answer me, O Yahweh my God, give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy says I have overcome him, and my adversaries rejoice that I am shaken. Those are just the kind of words our king prayed in the days of his flesh, right? Hebrews says, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Since God heard the prayer of Jesus, and since he's answered that prayer by now, raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand, Therefore, we pray this psalm today in a way the Old Testament saints never could pray it. We pray the psalms in light of the fulfillment already of Psalm chapter 2. Okay, but there's still a not yet. And so we still pray with God's people and in and with our king this petition, look and answer me, O Yahweh, my God. Give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says I've overcome him, and my adversaries rejoice that I am shaken. If we can't learn to pray those words today, maybe we'll need to learn them later. Better to learn them now. Which is really just to pray, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. 
Come, Lord Jesus. Contained within our lament is petition. And if that's so, then underlying all our petition is a confident trust and joyful thanksgiving. I don't know how these things go together, brothers and sisters, but if if you've experienced it, you know it does. On the one hand, we have sorrow all the day. On the other hand, we have a deep down, firmly rooted joy. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice. And if you say my heart shall rejoice, there is a cause for joy. In your salvation, I will sing to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully with me. And once again, those are words that we pray in a way the Old Testament saints never could pray them. Now, I'm not, I'm not demeaning the Old Testament saints. They had a lot of faith, and they're in the hall of faith, right? But in terms of the redemptive, redemptive history that is unfolding, we live in the age of fulfillment, and so we pray these in ways that they just couldn't, not through any fault of their own. We pray these because we have trusted in the loving kindness and all the covenant mercies that God has shown to us in Christ. Just listen to these words. And if you're, if you're at some level in, in a place like the psalmist was, sorrow in your heart all the day, asking how long, remember this. When the kindness and loving affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out upon us richly. It's not about you feeling that, it's about believing it by faith, because he said it. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And again, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We know, we know that our hearts shall rejoice in his salvation. We know that one day we will sing to Yahweh because already he has dealt bountifully with you. With us. Because already he has answered the prayer of his anointed king. And now this is very important here. It is this certainty that God will answer the prayers that we pray. That he will respond to our cries of how long. The prayers that we pray in and with our king. The prayers that God invited us and called us to pray. It's this certainty that gives us then joy 
even today, a joy that exists still. And here are the among the most important words of this morning. Together with. Together with our sorrow and our cries of lament. How long, O Yahweh? Until when? I believe that our ability, our ability to pray and to sing the psalms as a church can be an indicator of our spiritual condition as individuals, but also as a church. Of where our priorities truly lie. And so here's, that's the negative side of it. Here's the positive side of it. A commitment to learning how, how to rightly pray and sing the psalms together in and with our King is a wonderful, powerful means of molding and shaping our priorities after the priorities of Christ and his kingdom. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our King, whom you have installed upon Zion, your holy hill. Thank you that he has been seated far above all rule and power and authority. And that you have given him now as head over all things to the church. We thank you then that it is this king who was once in the days of his flesh like we are. Who once cried out to you with loud cries and tears to the one able to save him from death. It's this king, our sympathetic high priest, who leads us today in praying his prayers. Thank you then that by your own invitation we can pray how long and it be for us the cry of faith. Even apart from enemies I would pray that those who at some level could identify even perhaps now with this sorrow in their heart all the day that they would learn then to cry out with these words. We pray then also especially for all of our brothers and sisters over whom the enemy is exalting himself. Lord, we see in our own culture the wickedness of the enemy assaulting you and and ultimately assaulting your people. And so we pray that we would learn now to pray these words and so to respond in a holy and righteous and pure way, untainted by personal vendettas, by a self-righteous anger, or by a hatred and spite that is unworthy of your people. Father, we pray for your comforts for us. And Lord, help us as we sing now together this prayer to sing it truly in and with our King.
Help us to prepare our hearts for this wonderful supper that you've given to us to eat together, to drink of together. We thank you for all your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.